You're listening to the Think Again Worship Podcast, Episode 4, Call to Worship, Part 1. Well, my name is Tom Dykstra, and I'm inviting you to rethink the ways you plan and lead worship. And it's because I believe that your leadership has the power to help your people experience worship that is truly life-changing, worship that reorients their lives to the hope of the gospel. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Think Again Worship Podcast. Thanks for joining me. For the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about the beginning of our worship gatherings and what we often call the call to worship. And let me give you the big idea right off the bat, and that's this. The call to worship helps to frame the whole worship gathering as a relational encounter. And here's the, here's the key that God initiates. So I'm going to be sharing in three parts, and just to keep the episodes on the shorter side, I'm dividing it into two episodes. So in part one, this first episode, we're going to talk about basically the significance of having a call to worship. Like, why, why does it matter? And then in part two, I'll share some practical principles to think through as you're planning and writing and leading a call to worship, kind of the nuts and bolts of how to. And then I'll wrap up by giving you some examples of calls to worship that I have written or I've used or would use in my context. And I want you to be able to write and prepare your own calls to worship. And so at the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you how to get a free tool that I've put together that includes call to worship examples that you can use and also steps to creating and advice on how to lead your own. So let's dive in. What does every Star Wars movie have in common? They all begin with that amazing theme by John Williams, played by a symphony orchestra. And as the Star Wars logo disappears, that text begins scrolling from the bottom of the screen and into the distance. Well, this opening to every Star Wars movie, I think, does at least two things really well. When you hear the first few bars of that theme song come crashing through the speakers, it's, it's this unmistakable sign that the previews are over. You know, everyone's eyes are straight ahead because there's an important story to pay attention to. And it's, it's just this undeniably powerful transition moment, especially that first note. It just sucks you right into the story. So Bob Coughlin Um, has pointed out that the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for the assembled church, it literally means the called out ones. So when we assemble or when we gather for worship, um, we are being called out. And it's it's kind of our own uh, unmistakable transitional moment. And what's happening is God is actively calling us out of the places we've been scattered throughout the week, our our homes, our neighborhoods, jobs, schools, uh, and, and all our other activities. We're called out to be gathered together. Now, the start of our worship doesn't have to be as intense or as triumphant as that Star Wars intro, but it should be a compelling moment 
that marks a transition and draws us in. The other thing that I think the Star Wars opening does well is it it sets the stage for the rest of the movie, the next two or three hours. That text that's scrolling across the screen, it's the setting. And it's, it's an entry point for us as the audience. It gives us the context that's going to allow us to more fully engage in the story and with the characters. If you walk in late to a Star Wars movie uh, with your popcorn and your Sour Patch Kids, and if you missed that moment, you're going to feel behind. You're, you're going to be disoriented as you try to figure out what in the galaxy is going on. Well, again, what happens in the beginning of our worship also has the potential to help orient our people to what's going to be happening for the next hour or so. Well, let's get a definition of the call to worship. Here's, here's how I would describe it. The call to worship is words that frame and anchor the whole worship gathering as a relational encounter that God initiates. Let me say that again. Words that frame and anchor the whole worship gathering as a relational encounter that God initiates. Or if we said it a little bit more simply, it's a moment that reminds us that God is the one who initiates worship. Now, the word initiate means to begin or to set in motion or to facilitate the beginning of something. When you think about things that God initiates in the Bible— what comes to mind? Truthfully, there are a lot of things. It almost feels like most things uh, he initiates, but perhaps the most obvious one is creation. You know, Genesis 1. One of the things I believe that should be happening in our worship is, is that the church family has a chance to remember and rehearse the story of God together. And one way to do that is to design the flow or the progression of your service to help retell God's story. Well, the narrative arc of God's story, aka the Bible, um, is often broken up into these four phases. You've probably you're probably familiar with them. You've probably heard them before, but it's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Some people say restoration. If the flow of your service helps to tell that story, then the call to worship is the part of your service flow that correlates to you guessed it, creation. And starting with a call to worship from scripture is a theological choice to make sure that just like in creation and just like God initiates life, your worship is going to begin with God. So here's how I framed our call to worship just last, the last time I led last week, I said, Friends, our call to worship is a significant moment because it reminds us that just like God called forth creation, and just like God called forth your very life and breathed into you, God is the one who initiates our worship. He's the one inviting us into this encounter, so we always begin with his words to us. This morning from Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Isn't that amazing? We often think of worship as coming to God with singing, hoping that he hears us and shows up. But in reality, it's his singing over us that's drawing us into his presence. Let's sing together. 
Okay, so that that uh, kind of demo of, of how I've uh, done a call to worship is a little longer than I'm typically aiming for. And I wouldn't want to say that every time, but what I was hoping was that framing the call to worship in that way would help people recognize value in that moment. And that more than, you know, my welcome, more than the worship team's encouragement, they would hear God's personal invitation to worship. Another cool way, I I really like this, um, that I've heard the call to worship relabeled is as the first word. You know, to help us see that God initiates worship, we give him on purpose the first word. And and giving God the first word of the of the gathering reminds us that He's the host. He's the true worship leader. He's the one who welcomes us in, and He's the one that we're responding to. So why does clarifying who initiates worship really matter? If you've heard the the first few episodes of this podcast, you've heard me talk a little bit about how practices and rhythms in our worship can reorient our hearts. I think a good way to come at this is to ask, what wanderings do our hearts need to be reoriented from? Or what happens when we are disoriented from recognizing that God is the one who starts and initiates worship? Well, I think there are you know, several tendencies in our hearts that the call to worship has the potential to reorient. But let me just try to, try to share two with you here. The first is, is for, honestly, it's probably more, mostly for us as worship leaders. I don't know if you've ever felt the pressure of like, you know, people are kind of milling about or talking or, you know, you've got to get their attention and then you really want them to worship. And so the way you start is kind of, you know, depends on how much they're going to engage and um, the way you structure things. And, and we can carry this burden of, of being the ones who urge people into worship. And we think that it depends on us. And I think sometimes people think about it that way. People in the seats, they look up and they, they almost sometimes, the expression on their face is almost, you know, make me worship. What are you going to say that's going to make me worship? You know, have you, ever, have you ever felt that? Well, what I think that, that having a call to worship from Scripture that's God's first words to us, it lifts some of that pressure off of. And we recognize that God is the host in this situation. God is the one welcoming. Yes, our, our leadership matters. We can help and we can hinder. We can get in the way. But it lifts that pressure and that burden of, hey, you know, friends, it's not me. It's not my responsibility to persuade you to worship. Look at who God is. Look at what he is like. And let's respond to that. Another tendency that I think happens in worship, and I kind of have a hard time putting this into words, but maybe with the help of Psalm 24, uh, I can I can frame this for you. David says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only someone with a pure heart and clean hands, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And, and that question is kind of an intimidating one. Like, who, who can stand in God's holy presence? I think we, we as, as worshipers, as God's people, often approach worship as like, um, you know, like how worthy am I to enter God's presence? Or, you know, my, the, the, the power of this encounter is going to be related to, you know, uh, how sincere my heart is in this moment. Or it's going to be related to how well I've performed, you know, in righteousness this week or 
holiness or, or whatever it is. We just have a tendency to, to be inwardly focused when it comes to worship. But a call to worship reminds us God is here with open arms. He's welcoming you. Here's what he is like. It is dependent not on your choice to get up and get in the car and go to worship this morning. It's dependent on his choice to welcome you. Hebrews 10 reminds us in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with water. You know, later in the service, you're probably going to more directly talk about the gospel, but that's another thing that God initiates in scripture, right? He initiates creation and he is the one who puts his plan of action to redeem his people so that, you know, in the Old Testament, they sprinkled blood on the um, Ark of the Covenant and sometimes on the people to demonstrate, you know, this blood uh, redeems you and purifies you and is their substitute for you. It's just worship doesn't depend on us. Worship and, and this ab- in ability to meet face-to-face in an encounter with God is it's really his terms, and he's made it possible. So our call to worship, I think, plays a part in framing that uh, in our hearts. You know, I often have thought about the songs after the sermon as response songs. You know, I label that on my order of worship sometimes. But the reality is that your first song should also be a response song. It's a response to God's invitation. When I choose and design a call to worship, what I want to do is I want to share with my church family just a little insight, just a glimpse into God's character and heart toward them that they can then respond to. Well, let me wrap up with this. Um, Back in October, I was watching LeBron James' first game with the LA Lakers with my brother-in-law, Justin. Now, he's a big Lakers fan, and so now, of course, he's a big LeBron fan. And I should say, I'm not sure. He may have been a bit of a LeBron fan before, but he definitely is now. But he made sure. He's like, you're not going to want to miss the pregame show and the starting lineup player introductions. And the reason he knew that was because he's been to Lakers games. He knows how much production they put into that spectacle. And this was a particularly big night for Lakers fans. And the pregame show definitely didn't disappoint. It was amped up. It was exciting. There was lights, music, enthusiasm, and just this ever-heightening anticipation for the tip-off, all of that. You know, L.A. is Hollywood. It's movie culture, production culture. It was definitely a a pretty substantial show. In fact, um, back in the mid-'80s, in the days of Magic Johnson, the Lakers had such an amazing collection of talent. They put on such a spectacle that they were called the Showtime Lakers. Well, just two, two quick closing thoughts from that pregame show. What, what can we learn as worship leaders from that show? Well, I think the, the producers of that pregame show, what they were trying to do was create an incredible amount of enthusiasm and excitement about what the fans were about to see. You're about to see a show, and it's all going to happen on, on the court in front of you or, or on your screen. This place, it, it's... It's where you want your attention to be. It's, it's holy ground. LeBron and friends are about to light it up in here. Our call to worship 
you know, it doesn't need to be the enthusiasm and necessarily that excitement and amping that up so much. It shouldn't be a show. Uh, it probably shouldn't have pyrotechnics and, and crazy lights. It should definitely not be about the worship band taking the stage. But what I think our call to worship should do is create expectation. It should, it should frame and set the tone for what's going to be happening. What happens in that very first moment sets things into motion, sets our time together um, on the right track. Now, it's possible that you lead worship on a planet where people show up on time for your services. Well, the other thing I want to take away from that pregame show is that I noticed that through repetition, producers have conditioned fans to be sure to arrive early, you know, because they're not going to want to miss the pregame show. I was speaking with a pastor recently, and he shared with me, um, I I wish we could help our people understand the value of the beginning of worship. You know, and if, if you just start with 10, 15, 20 minutes of songs, and that's basically what it is, people are going to be conditioned to not really worry about missing the first song or two or three. In fact, sometimes people just think, well, as long as I'm there by the sermon, I'm, I'm, I'm on time. But I think that as, as you begin, if you begin to be more intentional and thoughtful about um, shaping and forming your call to worship, people will begin slowly to see the value of getting the whole story. They're not going to want to miss that, that introduction moment. And that's, a, that's really a pastoral leadership thing. How do you think creatively about how to get them in those seats? Um, but the important thing is, I think, is making that a meaningful moment. Not just a, hey, welcome, everybody. Let's, let's dive into worship. So stoked that you're here. You know, like it's got to be a moment that carries weight. Well, whether, whether or not you have a, a moment in your, in your service order that is officially labeled call to worship, there is some kind of start, some kind of beginning. And I would just argue that the way you begin communicates something to your people about what's going to be happening during this time that you're together. Either implicitly or explicitly, it sends a message. So I want you to do some reflecting and maybe have some conversations with other worship leaders or pastors or you know anyone about the start of your services. And then I hope that the next episode is a helpful resource for you as you, as you um, think through how you craft your calls to worship and as you think through applying some of what we talked about today. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I've created a resource uh, for you that makes preparing, writing, and leading calls to worship more accessible. And I've actually found that preparing my own calls to worship can be easier than trying to mix and match and find someone else's or something in a book or online to work in my setting. And so in this call to worship toolkit, I give you tips for how to find and piece together calls to worship and then how to effectively lead them. And I think it'll be really valuable for you if this is a part of your worship service that you're interested in developing. So check it out. You can go to my website, tomdykstra.com. And there's a big picture of the call to worship toolkit. Just click there and it'll show you how to download that. And I hope that it is extremely valuable and helpful to you. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Well, thank you for listening to the Think Again Worship Podcast. As I share my perspectives and as we think about worship together, I would love to hear from you what's helpful and what's not. And if there's a question or a topic that you'd like me to dig into on the podcast, please send me an email and let me know, tomdykstra at gmail.com.
I hope you found some value in this episode. If you did, share it with a friend or another worship leader, and I would love to have you tune in again next time. We'll see you then.